Good morning. So, yeah, as Simon has said, my name is Angela. Can we just pray first? Father God, we pray that your word would come to us this morning, Lord, that it would fall on us like rain. Lord, I pray that it would bring refreshing and that it would bring growth and that it would cause, cause seeds of faith to germinate in our hearts and spring into life. Amen. So, we're doing a, a short series on the names of God from the Old Testament. And as you'll know, names in the Bible have great significance. They're not just labels, but they have meaning describing the person they're giving to in terms of character or destiny. Like Jesus, that means he'll save his people from their sins. Or Jacob, that meant the deceiver or supplanter, because that was what he was like. Or Isaac, which means he laughs. Presumably he was cheerful and amusing and funny. So in the same way... So in the same way, the seven names of God give us insight into who he is, what he does, and what he's like. So just to remind you what they are, they're Jehovah Jireh, which is God the provider, Jehovah Ra, which sounds like it should be God the lion, but in fact it's God the shepherd, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals, Jehovah Shalom, God is peace, Jehovah Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, Jehovah Nissi, the Lord our banner. And last but not least, Jehovah Shammah, which is my name today, or my name about God, which means God is present or God is there. So Yahweh Shammah is the last of God's names revealed by the Old Testament prophets. It appears only once in the book of Ezekiel at the end of the very last chapter. Ezekiel 48 verse 35 says, From then on, the name of that city will be, the Lord is there. As usual, there's going to be three parts to this talk. The first part is about Ezekiel and the Israelites and where they perceived God's presence to be. So that was during the 70 years of their exile. The second bit will be about where God's presence has been throughout the whole of history. So that's a span of 4,000 years or more. And the third part is going to be about what it means to have God's presence with us now. So, to start with, who was Ezekiel? Ezekiel was a priest living with the Israelites, writing in the 6th century before Christ. The last eight chapters of Ezekiel are about a vision that he has of a future city, which may be about the new creation, the new heaven and earth that will exist after the return of Jesus at the end of time, as we know it, a picture of the heavenly city, because this is a piece of apocalyptic writing about the future and about heaven. But the verse may also have had its fulfilment in the rebuilding of the temple and Jerusalem once the exiled Israelites returned back home. Because at this time, the Israelites weren't living in the land that God had given them, but in Babylon, where they'd been taken to live in exile. This happened in 587 BC. And that's just a little map to show you where Babylon was in relation to Israel. The Israelites remained in slavery in Babylon for 70 years until a group under the charge of Zerubbabel were allowed to return to Judah to build the temple again. Then another group returned under Ezra in 458 BC and then lastly a third group under Nehemiah 13 years later. And these last two groups helped to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So the Israelites would have been homesick, living in a country with a completely different culture to their own, and sad they could no longer live in their own homes or worship God in Jerusalem 
in the temple, which had been such an important part of their lives. It was now hundreds of miles away, and the temple had actually been destroyed by the Babylonians. The Ark of the Covenant, which was incredibly precious to them and most closely associated with the presence of God, was in the temple in the most important part, the Holy of Holies. But after the Babylonian invasion, it was never heard of again and was probably destroyed. Without the temple, the Israelites could not offer the sacrifices demanded of them by God. And without the sacrifices, they couldn't be forgiven as there was no way left for them to get right with God. They would have been very concerned about their eternal well-being or lack of it as the temple was essential to the health of their relationship with God. The Israelites had been driven out of their native country, stripped of every comfort and convenience in a strange land among idolaters, weary and broken-hearted. They would sometimes sit in silence and weep. Psalm 137 was written during this time. It'll be very familiar to you and I won't sing it, but it says, By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down and wept, when we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So God knew this is the way they were seeing things. So he sent them, the prophet Ezekiel, to speak to them, to bring them hope. And in the first chapter of chapter of chap, first verse of chapter one, Ezekiel says, While I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. For a Jew, this would have been strange, as the expectation would be that they would only be able to experience the presence of God back in the temple in Jerusalem. In chapter ten, He has another vision of the glory of God actually leaving the temple altogether and standing by the east gate facing Babylon. Ezekiel was saying to the exiles that God is not bound by geographic location and is not to be found only in the temple in Jerusalem, but he is wherever they are. So they're not alone or abandoned by God. Ezekiel then ends his book, as we've seen, by prophesying about the new city with a new temple where God is not only present, but it's actually called God is there. Yahweh Shammah may have been the most astonishing of all of God's names to the Jews. Not only was God saying that he was not bound to stay in the temple, he was saying that he was wherever his people were, even in pagan evil Babylon. The very name Yahweh is there would have shown them that he had not abandoned them, that they could never be alone and that they could always worship him. No matter how far they had strayed or how sinful they'd been, God's faithfulness to his own name meant that he would always be with them and for them. So the next bit. Yahweh Shammah is both exciting and comforting to us, just as it would have been to the Israelites, because it's pointing towards God completing his work, which he started at creation. God is, of course, omnipresent, which means everywhere, at all times, not limited by space or time. He's present in every point of space with his whole being. Jeremiah says in chapter 23, Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and the earth? 
More than that, as King Solomon says in 1 Kings when he's dedicating the temple he built for God, the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Although God is above all and sovereign over everything, he has chosen to manifest or show his presence in specific places at specific times throughout the whole of human history. And the temple is used as a symbol of where God's presence was. At times it was an actual physical temple, a building, but at other times it was a different kind of place or a person or people. Right at the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God actually lived with Adam and Eve. His presence was physically with them and he walked in the garden. Then after Adam's sin and the fall, people were no longer able to have and enjoy God's presence with them in that way. They could no longer literally walk with God. That privilege was lost. There was now a separation between man and God caused by sin. Then during the time of Moses, God instructed that a tabernacle or tent be constructed for his presence to dwell in. That would be the place where the people could go to meet God. But not all the people could be in God's presence. Only the priests could do that. Everyone else had to stay outside. It was portable and could be carried around and set up wherever the Israelites were staying at the time during their 40 years travelling in the desert, having been led out of Egypt by God and before they settled in the Promised Land. It was made up of a courtyard with a smaller tent inside, and this, in turn, was divided in two by a veil. The first compartment was called the holy place, and the second, the holy of holies, or the most holy place, and it was here that God's presence dwelt. Only one man, the high priest, could enter the holy of holies, and it contained this Ark of the Covenant, a rectangular box made of acacia wood. It only measured four feet by two and a half by two and a half feet. It was covered in gold and was carried on poles inserted in rings at the four lower corners. The lid, or mercy seat, was a gold plate surrounded by two cherubs with outstretched wings. And within it was Aaron's staff and the tablets of stone on which were written the Ten Commandments and a pot of manna, the supernatural food provided by God for the Israelites in the desert. Around the tabernacle, outside the courtyard, would have been the tents of the Levites, the tribe from which the priests came. Ordinary people were not allowed to go in and experience the presence of God. In fact, they were fearful of God's presence. Once they arrived in the Promised Land, the ark was moved three times and continued to be the place where the presence of God dwelt until Solomon built his temple in Jerusalem. That was in the mid-10th century B.C., then the ark was installed in the temple with great ceremony by Solomon. God's presence at that time dwelt in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, behind the enormous curtain which separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Again, only the high priest could enter and be in the place where God was. Then God came to earth himself in the form of a man, Jesus, who was both fully God and fully man. In the person of Jesus, God physically entered our world. And one of his names was Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Because Jesus gave up his life by dying on the cross for us and removing the effects of sin that separated us from God, we can now have the very presence of God in us. He actually comes and makes his home with us. John 14:23 says, Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. We ourselves become the temple, the place where God's manifest presence is. I just really like that word home in there. Home suggests to me the place where you belong, the place of safety and security. It's the place you come back to when you've been out or away, and it's the place where we live most of the time. We say, don't we, home is where the heart is. Children from good homes who have parents who love them and encourage them and discipline them do better in life than children who don't have that sort of a home. And I think we're those people, aren't we? We're people whose home is with God and because he has come and made his home with us. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 says, Don't you know you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Not only that, but God has also sent the Holy Spirit, the other person of the Trinity, to live in us and with us. Jesus says in John 14:16 that after he has left the earth, I will ask the Father, and he will give you a counsellor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Again, showing that we're the temple now. And finally, at the end of time, all Christians will end up with God in eternity, living in his actual presence again in the new creation which will follow Jesus' return to the earth. John talks about this in Revelation 21. He says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We will actually see God face to face and live with him forever. This will be a restoration of God's original plan for humanity. Everything has gone full circle. Just as it was in the beginning, when God lived with Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, where everything was perfect. In heaven, instead of a separation between God and the people, there'd be the very opposite. God would again live with them, just as he had done back in the Garden of Eden. God's people will be united together in God's place, the new creation, and the new Jerusalem will be the new temple. There'll be no special place where God's presence will be concentrated and no holy building to go to if we want to meet with him. The whole place is the temple. So it says in Revelation 21, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There'll be no distance between us and God anymore. We will know him perfectly and we'll all submit to God's rule and therefore know his perfect blessing. So, this is part three. What does Jehovah Shammah mean for us now? That God is present, God is there. A few years ago, I went through the book of Psalms and I highlighted every verse that described all the things that God is and does. It kind of paints a bit of a picture and all the different brush strokes and all the different things that are talked about in Psalms. So I'm just going to share a few with you. Psalm Psalm 1 verse 6 says, God himself watches over us. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Our ways are not hidden from God. 
He chose us in Jesus before the creation of the world, as it says in Ephesians, and he put each one of us together, making us all individual and unique, just as he wanted us to be. He knows where we are, what we're doing, how we're feeling, what we're thinking, and even what we're going to say next. He knows how many hairs are on our heads. He watches our comings and goings every day, and he knows when we're sleeping. There's nothing that God doesn't know about us, and he's caring for us and watching over us all the time. Secondly, God blesses us, his people. Psalm 5 says, Surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. He protects and helps us. Psalm 28 says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Psalm 5 says, Surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. He's also our counselor. Psalm 32 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. God keeps us going through the dark times and brings revelation. Psalm 18 says, You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. And Psalm 54, Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. And Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd are a bit of a disaster. They will wander and get themselves into all sorts of trouble. They will expose themselves to danger and not necessarily be able to find food. They need their shepherd for protection and to lead them to a place where food is plentiful. But our shepherd does not leave the sheep. He does not leave us. He also gives us peace. Psalm 29 says, The Lord blesses his people with peace. He's our comforter. Psalm 34 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He gives us victory. Psalm 44 says, Through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. And Psalm 68 He's our burden bearer. God daily bears our burdens. And Psalm 57, God fulfills his purpose for me. And lastly, Psalm 103. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. He redeems my life from the pit and crowns me with love and compassion. He satisfies my desires with good things so that my youth is renewed like the eagle's. This amazing God does all these things and he's present with us and has made his home with us. And that's just from the Psalms. Clearly God has revealed much more than this about himself in the rest of the Bible. But although we probably know all that and we are aware of God's promise to never leave us or forsake us, there are times when we're just not feeling it. Times of testing come that can be difficult or painful. So what do we do then? Number one, I think, just know that God has a purpose in it all. Nothing is wasted in God. He's always sovereign over everything. And as Julian Adams used to say, God is large and in charge. James says that trials will come, but they cause us to persevere. And that brings us to maturity, being complete and not lacking anything, which has to be better than being immature, incomplete and lacking something. And then Paul in Corinthians talks about our troubles achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
And the writer of Hebrews encourages us to remember to walk by faith, not by sight, and that by faith and patience we can inherit the promises. He also tells us not to throw away our confidence because it will be richly rewarded. I'm going to finish with a story about a man who faced a tragedy in his own life and out of that experience wrote a beautiful worship song, What a Faithful God. Robert Critchley is his name. He's an associate minister of Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship in Canada. At college, befriended by a group of students who met for prayer and Bible study, he made the decision to become a Christian. He notes... Looking back, I can see that I'd been on a journey in search of love and approval, destiny and a peace of mind. I had sought fulfilment in these things through relationships, drug use and what I thought would bring me great happiness, which was being a successful musician. I met this group of Christians at college who were really passionate about their relationship with God. I was invited to attend one of their informal prayer meetings. Overwhelmed by my need of the Saviour, whom they were worshipping, I asked my friends to help me find peace with God. They led me through a simple prayer of repentance and commitment to Jesus Christ. I was encouraged to receive his free gift of forgiveness from all my sin and the promise of eternal life and friendship with him. I came to understand that God the Father loved me so much that he gave his only son Jesus to die upon a cross, paying in full the penalty for all my godless living. Through confessing my belief in Christ and deciding to follow him, I experienced the weight of a guilty and defiled conscience lift from me. Flooded with the mercy and grace of God, I knew that I had been born again. I became deeply aware of God's love for me and that he had given me the new beginning. I now had an inward assurance that he would lead me toward the destiny that he created me for, guided daily by the Holy Spirit. Robert and his wife Dawn had four children, Bethany, Noah, Gideon and Elijah. But Gideon died just days after his birth because of multiple health complications. Robert and Dawn testify that it was the eternal love and grace of God that gave them both hope and comfort through what was a very difficult time. The presence of the Lord was especially evident to both of them. Through the comfort they received from God, they had the privilege and consolation of comforting others in life's sufferings. His most well-known song, What a Faithful God, was written during that time. So if you don't know Jesus as your saviour yet, as I've just talked about, and if you'd like to today, please speak to whoever you came with or one of the elders. And I just um, would like to pray for, and we would like to pray for, if anybody um, would like prayer today. If you feel like you're carrying a burden and that you need God to just come alongside you and be in your circumstances, or if you need to know God is your shepherd and your guide, or if you're just feeling like you need to know that um, God is the one who brings you peace. Amen. Amen.